All right, time for us to check in with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. Good morning, Vaughn. And good morning, Simi. Okay, we should probably update this whole BC Ferry story, too, because we finally heard from them. Yeah, it finally uh, emerged. There is actually a CEO at BC Ferries and one who's willing to come out and account for the troubles on the weekend. Uh, I see he's downplaying them, but I don't think if you live on Bowen Island or if you were waiting to get on a ferry at Swartz Bay or trying to figure out what was going on because you were trying to access the website or the app, you would think everything went well. But in any event, uh, full congratulations to Nicholas Jimenez, the new CEO, for making himself available to the news media. I agree with what you said yesterday. This should be routine for BC Ferries, but he is a new CEO, so I guess we'll allow him one rotten long weekend before we establish a pattern. (laughs) All right, so this is his bye. I'm talking to him later this morning, so I will let him know. Yeah, so that's good. No, I'm glad This is your bye. This is the one that you get. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Okay, so we'll talk to him about that. Let's talk about these um, StatsCan numbers on who's buying housing in our province. Yeah, so there's been a running debate for a while about the impact of investor-owned housing, investor-owned real estate on housing affordability. And there's been a lot of people say, look, there's a big problem that a lot of real estate is owned for investment purposes. It's not owned by people who live in that particular unit. And I'll give Stats Canada credit. They've launched a project this year to actually provide the stats beyond the anecdotes. The first report came out, hmm, I think it was in February, and it found that hmm, 20% ownership in British Columbia was um, owned for investment purposes. So a person owned a unit or a house, and they lived in that, but they owned other units and other houses for investment purposes. Uh, 20% is high. Uh, That suggests that it is a real problem. But we didn't know an awful lot about who these people are and where they live and where they came from and all that. So the new report is just out on Monday of this week. So this is the second in a series tells us more about who these people are. And it focuses on British Columbia because the reality is more pronounced here. So I guess there's two or three things jump out at it, Simi. The first one is that um, a lot of ownership is um, a kind of investor occupied. So if you imagine a townhouse complex or a condo building or a multi-duplex, for example, or a house with a basement suite, uh, those are all counted as people live in one of the units and they rent out the other one. So that's that's investor-owned. Uh, it's also uh, an investor who has a second property, like in the same building or complex. Um, that's an investment. So that's there's a lot of those. But the interesting thing is here in British Columbia, Simi, this one really jumps out, is a significant number of non-resident investors, like 3% of the ownership, are people that aren't British Columbians. They don't live here. They're either from another province or they're from outside Canada. Uh, and a lot of this, a lot of this data, I, I, it will, I think it will drive the debate, Simi. I think it will mean that, you know, people can actually go beyond the anecdotes and point to the statistics. And I think it will fuel a couple of debates. The first is whether 
genuinely non-resident investors should be taxed in some way that they aren't taxed today because they are contributing to the problem here in British Columbia. The other thing I think jumps out is immediately is the unintended consequences of densification. So if you're encouraging the building of more units on existing lots and existing properties, you're densifying residential. Well, in Vancouver, 16% of residences, residential complexes, duplexes, all that, are already uh, have an an investor ownership component. So person lives in one, they own other units, so they're owning multiple units. Already 16%. So the report suggests that if you move toward densification, which is where you're headed in Vancouver and Victoria, it's also a, a reality here, you're going to get more investor ownership. You're going to increase the investor ownership. And that isn't one of the intended things of densification. It's supposed to make more housing available for people who want to live in it. You may go the other way. Uh, yeah. So th- these are these numbers that um, like StatsCan brings them out every once in a while, right? But they've caused a lot of debate in the past. Well, they have. And as I said, they've made a project of it. Now, the federal government is cracking down on foreign ownership of uh, property in Canada, and that's one of the reasons they're doing it. But I think it's also serving a purpose to uh, alert local governments and the public to... It's a complicated situation. I mean, it's very different. Uh, investor-owned property is very different if it's somebody who um, owns a house and has a basement suite they're renting out to help pay their mortgage. Or an older person, because many, many of these people are older, they're over the age of 55, who is holding the second property, which may be on the same lot uh, as their retirement money. It's very different from somebody who is non-resident in British Columbia, uh, foreign investor or recent immigrant uh, who has bought up a whole bunch of property. Um, so you're, if you're trying to... Uh, and what I'm saying, Simi, is if you're trying to design a tax policy to deal with this, you're going, it's going to be complicated because you don't necessarily want to penalize the person who's converted a laneway house in order to help service their mortgage and some recent uh, arrival or some non-resident owner who owns a whole bunch of property. Another example is along the Alberta-BC border. There's a lot of non-resident ownership. Albertans who own perhaps a recreational property in British Columbia. So I I think, as I said, I commend, Mm -hmm. and and the report's just out this week, so I think we'll be waiting to see what people like Andy and Tom Davidoff and so forth say about what it all really means, but it's certainly the National Statistics Agency giving us some real genuine numbers and research to back up what a lot of us suspect anecdotally. Okay, so that's there's definitely more to come on that one too. But I also wanted to ask you about what's going on. There's an announcement today. Premier David yeah. Eby is announcing a, a candidate for Vancouver Mount Pleasant. Yes. So 
Well, the legislature's adjourned, but politics is, is forever in British Columbia. We have two vacancies in the legislature waiting for by-elections. One of them is Vancouver Mount Pleasant, uh, occupied by Melanie Mark. Uh, when Melanie stepped down earlier this year, she said she hoped her successor would be an Indigenous woman. It is. Joan Phillip. Uh, the premier is going to make it official tonight. She was the only candidate for the nomination and nominates have closed. So she will be the NDP candidate in Vancouver, Mount Pleasant. Um, Vancouver, Mount Pleasant is as close as an automatic NDP seat can be found in British Columbia. It even survived the sweep in uh, 2001, so she's Joan Phillip is likely to be the next MLA for Vancouver Mount Pleasant. Uh, the name Phillip is recognizable, I think, to many British Columbians. She is married to Grand Chief Stuart Phillip of the Union of BC Indian Chiefs. However, she is a politician in her own right. She was a longtime band counselor, activist, and she ran for the federal NDP. So, uh, you know, she's a she's a qualified NDP candidate. The interesting thing for those of us who watch politics, uh, Simi, is uh, Joan Phillip and Grand Chief Stuart Phillip have at times been very critical of the policies of this NDP right. government, Site C, LNG. Uh, I, I, she is not going to be an easy person to stifle, so it will be interesting to see how much leeway the Premier gives her uh, to criticize the government from time to time. Now, she may confine that to the caucus room. Other New Democrats do that. But uh, I think there'll be a temptation for her to, as I said, she's, uh, she has an easy time speaking out. She's spoken out many times. Uh, I've met her a few times, ferociously independent, uh, as she should be, and uh, her own person. So this is a, an interesting choice for the NDP. It does fulfill what Melanie Markhold held, hoped when she stepped down, that her successor would be an Indigenous woman. Her successor will very likely be an Indigenous woman. And by the way, she does live in the riding. She and her husband, Grand Chief Stuart Phillip, uh, they have a condominium in that riding, I believe. Hmm, interesting. Okay. And so how soon could those be coming, those by-elections? Well, you know, it's interesting. All the parties have now nominated uh, in Vancouver, Mount Pleasant, and in Langford, the other riding, uh, John Horgan's old riding. So everybody's nominated in Langford, uh, they were out campaigning on the weekend because uh, the Luxton Rodeo, a major event in Langford Riding, was on the weekend, and the candidates were there campaigning. Uh, I think the premier is getting ready to call the by-elections very soon. It's a four-week campaign. If he calls them this week or next, uh, the by-election would still be in June, uh, and I think that's where he's headed. He's ruled out the idea of a spring election. He's discouraging the idea of a fall election. They'd have to be called um, by September, but I think we're looking at a June vote, and the Premier could announce the date. Uh, well, he could announce it as soon as today, but I think it's likely that we will have by-elections there in June, and both ridings, uh, long-time NDP ridings, both ridings favor the government, so the Premier won't be too worried uh, about the timing. Uh, I think he expects uh, New Democrats will fill both seats. We will see. All right, Vaughn, thank you. Bye-bye, Simi.